Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 45. After Hours with Dr. Robert Royal. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that it's an after-hours episode, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Royal. Dr. Robert Royal is the founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing. Dr. Royal holds a BA and an MA from Brown University, and a PhD in comparative literature from the Catholic University of America. He has taught at Brown University, Rhode Island College, and the Catholic University of America. His articles have appeared in numerous scholarly journals and other publications, including First Things, the Catholic Historical Review, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the National Review. He is also a noted author, and among Dr. Royal's many books are The Pope's Army and The God That Did Not Fail. Dr. Royal, welcome to Pints with Jack. Good to be with you. I love C.S. Lewis, so I'm, I'm, I just was delighted to have this opportunity. Well, I was aware of the Faith and Reason Institute because I lived for about six months in Washington, D.C. But you in particular came on my radar from the Institute of Catholic Culture, this wonderful organization on the East Coast that produces these high-quality lectures about history, scripture, theology. And you gave this wonderful two-part series on the Screwtape Letters. And after I'd heard that, I just had to have you on the show to discuss it. <laughs> Since you're from the Faith and Reason Institute, I thought today's quotation should reflect Lewis's thoughts on those two topics, namely faith and reason. In Mere Christianity, he writes this. Supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for Christianity, I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment at which it would be convenient if Christianity were not true. And his emotions will carry out a blitz. I'm not talking about those moments at which any real reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I'm talking about moments where a mere mood rises up against it. Now, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. For moods change whatever view your reason takes. The next thing is our drink of the week. And normally it's some kind of scotch or some kind of tea, but my wife had my favourite Gatorade in the fridge. It's lime and cucumber. So I'm having a little bit of that mixed with some carbonated water. Dr. Royal, are you sipping on anything? Uh, not at the moment, and I'm not so sure that Lewis would approve of what you've chosen for tonight. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think he would either. In fact, I think there's quite a few of my tastes that I think Jack would quite disapprove. Is that what I call a Catholic beverage, which is a little stronger? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll fix it later with some red wine. But in the meantime, cheers. Cheers. So, to kick things off, Dr. Royal, if you wouldn't mind, could you please fill in a few more details about your background and the Faith and Reason Institute? 
Well, I started out life thinking I was going to be an academic. I began studying Dante when I was an undergraduate, and I was just overwhelmed by him. But my literary interests became broader and broader. And after spending a year as a Fulbright student in Florence studying Dante, I was newly married at the time. My wife was pregnant. I went back to Brown University, and I was an instructor in Italian. And of course, like many young couples, we couldn't make ends meet on the salary that you got being an instructor. So one thing led to another. I was very quickly um, hired as an editor at Princeton University of a magazine called Prospect, um, an alumni magazine, but a, a conservative Christian alumni magazine that sought to kind of this was the granddaddy of all the counter magazines on campuses that tried to bring back some of the the, um, the rigor of study and Christianity. And then from there, I moved down here to uh, Washington, D.C. I actually live in Northern Virginia, where the uh, Institute of Catholic Culture is located, but my office is a few, a few blocks away from the White House. I worked at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is another famous Washington think tank that has interests in religion, as the vice president for research for a number of years. And then in 1999, I was finishing up a book on the Catholic martyrs of the 20th century. I actually gave a copy of that book to John Paul II on May 7, uh, 2000 it was. That was the day that he celebrated all the Christian martyrs, not only the Catholic martyrs, but the Christian martyrs of the 20th century at the Colosseum. And so it was a great celebration of Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, um, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox and whatnot. And I thought at the time, because John Paul II had just published his encyclical Fide Sit Ratio, Faith and Reason, in which he, he talks about, in, in more technical terms than that Lewis quote that you just mentioned, how it is that faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit rises to the truth, which is to say ultimately to God. And I thought that that was a, a good thing for us to, to, to try to follow. I wanted to start something new that we could you know, we could inject a new uh, spirit in Washington, and I don't mean to be flip about this, but I calculated that there was not a glut of either faith or reason, <laughs> you see, and that I, I would have a growth industry at both ends, and I'd never go out of business, and in, amazingly, over 20 years later, we're still in existence. So we've been doing those think tank things for publishing books and 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 being in um, uh, magazines and, and uh, periodicals of various sorts that you just described earlier. We also do a lot of radio and TV, and we do we do teaching, and we, we uh, host uh, seminars and whatnot. But it's a very rich attempt to engage from the perspective of faith and reason, not from this perspective of politics, but just to, to engage public life from that perspective, which I think is actually prior to the political questions that we see. And one of the reasons why politics, I believe, has become so politicized and bitter is that we make these political differences into, into eschatological differences, when in fact, there's a lot that we share in common and that we ought to return to. And most of all, I think the Christian notion of forgiveness, that in public life, even that there are differences and, and things get said that shouldn't be said, but there's a different way that a Christian should approach those questions. So we've been doing that for over 20 years with some success, and we hope to do it for a while longer now. And where in your own journey did you first discover C.S. Lewis? You know, you put that question to me, and I have to say, in all honesty, I feel like I was born reading <laughs> C.S. Lewis. It isn't true. I know that I did not know C.S. Lewis through high school, at least. So I must have encountered him somewhere when I was at university. I have a feeling, but it's only a feeling, that I probably 
started to read Lewis because I was studying Dante. And you probably know that Lewis wrote a very important book for people who study pre-modern literature called The Discarded Image. It's about the Ptolemaic universe, which is Dante's universe, where the earth is in a way at the center, but it's really actually at the bottom, as Lewis points out, of the universe. And then there are concentric circles around it going all the way up to heaven, after which when you reach the fixed stars, you transcend the physical universe and you enter actually into, into heaven where God and, and the saints are. So um, I think I probably picked that up, although I might have picked up screw tape or you know, one of the novels somewhere along the way. But I think that was my entry point, but more of a scholarly nature than a literary nature. And how did that escalate? Did you just move through his corpus or was there a particular genre of his work that you really liked? Well, he's such a genius. He, he's just a genius at everything he touches. He's a, a genius when he's writing expository works. He's a genius as just a scholar of you know, whether it's Milton or uh, the, the Middle Ages or, or whatever he touches. He's just, it seems to me, he's, just, he's so brilliant. I mean, he's just pure brain power, but also joined in a rare way, because as we know, there are an awful lot of people who are very smart that can't tell you what they know and <laughs> you can absorb. Uh, but that, that genius that he has for finding images or, or metaphors for, for things. And um, I, I think that the cleverness of the screw tape letters, of course, is that when, in what other work have we heard from the devil's point of view what it's like to try to tempt a soul into damnation? So um, there's just so much about him that I admire and, and actually try to imitate in my own life. I write a number of books and I always have in mind the, the idea that um, what I'm writing, however esoteric in, in one sense it might be, um, I'm writing for other people. I'm trying to I'm trying to help other people understand something. So I labor at that a good deal. Oh, have you come across C.S. Lewis and The Craft of Communication by Dr. Stephen Beebe? It covers all that sort of stuff. It's really good. Yeah, I don't know that book. I don't know that book at all. I, I'll look for it. In his book, he outlines five key principles that he sees C.S. Lewis using all of the time. And at the very end of the book, he explains how you can do it too. Yeah, right. <laughs> we can all do it to a certain extent because we are communicating animals, but not the way he did. He's just the, I said in those two lectures that you talked about on uh, screw tape letters that I think he and G.K. Chesterton are the greatest Christian apologists in the 20th century in any language, let alone in, in English. And I, my, my PhD is in comparative literature, so I work in a lot of different languages and different language groups, actually. And there's just nothing like them. There are there are good things. There are some very good things in, in many different languages, Russian in, in particular. And, but these two, I think, really touched the heart of what was going on in the 20th century and had some, they actually had some remedies, which is, is rare. It's, it's relatively easy to do the diagnosis. It's harder to prescribe the, you know, the medicine that's going to be the cure. Chesterton and Lewis. I love it. Because I'm on Pints with Jack and my wife is on Pints with Chesterton. Oh, good for her. <laughs> Can you remember what you first thought when you first read the Screwtape Letters? Because the first time I read it, I remember thinking, this is really funny, but with the world turned upside down this way, I'm actually not quite sure what I'm meant to believe. Yeah, I, I said in those lectures, I was very careful because, um, you know, a lot of people get offended very easily these days. And some people even have a will to be offended, I would say, because 
to be offended or to be a victim is kind of the default position for for moral superiority in our society. Um, there are, are a number of places, it seems to me, where you have to read carefully and you have to know how to read, which is a, a declining skill in, in our society. And so I, I took great pains to try to explain some places where people might misunderstand. One thing that, for example, just to take a, a, a salient example for people like me who live in and around the Washington, D.C. area, is that people very often take some other cause and they attach it to their Christianity. Now, I don't know exactly why Lewis did that, because that book was written around 1941. And he, he does mention pacifism versus, you know, strong defense of the country and whatnot. Maybe that was the burning issue. But I find here in, in 21st century Washington that his description his, his, and his, his psychological mechanisms that he describes, I think, are just spot on. His description of the way that what can often happen with a Christian is they attach their faith to some cause. Now, you know, it could be a good cause, whatever the cause might be, you know, say combating poverty. Then he says, little by little, the tempter tries to make it that the, the cause isn't just part of the Christianity, but the Christianity is part of the cause. And then at a certain point, the cause doesn't really need the Christianity because, you know, there are secular sources that you can draw on to continue the cause. So I think that kind of subtlety, that, that understanding that he has of the way that even good things can attract us. And of course, evil can only present itself to us. I say this quite explicitly in, that, in those two lectures. Evil, evil can only attract us by presenting itself as beauty or presenting itself as a good. We know from the scriptures that the devil can present himself as an angel of light. That's a warning that, that God has revealed to us and we need to be cautious about the mere appearances and, and, and such. So I, I think that all that um, is... The more difficult part, I think a lot of people are probably struck by this down-to-earth quality that he has when, for example, an elderly woman is not a glutton, but she has the sin of gluttony in, in the reverse sense. And I think that this is something that even escapes a figure like Dante. For Dante, I think gluttony is really just what we normally you know, think of it as, is just excessive eating and drinking. That's what, where it's mostly the offense. Lewis takes a very different and subtle argument where he realizes that gluttony is another way of expressing egotism, that that elderly woman who you know, doesn't demand delicacies or expensive foods or wines or whatnot, but she wants her little toast and tea. And no one, no servants really properly know how to make tea. And the toast is maybe too burnt or it's not dark enough and it's buttered. And so it's that it's a selfishness that expresses itself through a um, delicacy about food rather than that just a brutal appetite for, for more and more. And that's where I think Lewis is just so astonishingly perceptive. I think his, his book, um, The Great Divorce, is closer to Dante in that it, it has the, the sort of dramatic scenes that you see in Dante and, and the, the various sins are played out. But this, the Screwtape Letters is much more subtle and I think much more penetrating even than Dante in many respects. Dante can be very penetrating in psychological terms. But Lewis has that sensitivity and he knows how the way that that evil voice in our heads kind of takes even the good that we try to do. I don't want to be a bother, but you really do. Because, <laughs> you know, you insist on having the few things that you want to have exactly your way. So I, I think that's what what's struck me. And I think it continues to strike people today. That's one of the, th the reasons why we go to him 
there, it's rare that you find that degree of sensitivity to various psychological mechanisms. And then again, across a wide range of subjects, of course, too. About the time of recording this interview, we recently recorded the episode where Screwtape speaks about gluttony. And in preparation for that, I went to the Summa to see what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say on that subject. And I was delighted to see that he made all the same sorts of distinctions that Screwtape makes. And one of the things that I loved about your presentation at the Institute of Catholic Culture was that you point out all of the links between Screwtape and Dante. And I've heard people say that Dante is basically the Summa in verse. But I have to say, at least on that particular issue, on the subject of gluttony, I think C.S. Lewis did the better job. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's true. Although, again, I want to say that there are places. Let's take the, the question of lust. You know, the very famous adulterous pair, Paolo and Francesca, in Canto Five of Inferno. Well, you know, Lewis talks about, or, or let's say, Screwtape talks about how their disinformation department has has convinced modern people that romantic love is the only reason for being married, and and they they look down on on the mere um, fidelity to one another and to bringing up children and, and comforting one another, which are other other reasons why people are getting should get married. They look down on that as just sort of a base way that you really should have this this towering romantic feeling for your, your partner. Well, Dante talks about that in Contra Five of Inferno, and and uh, Francesca comes to him, and she's they start to speak to one another in this this courtly language. You know, she's the, the lady; he's he's sort of like a courtier who knows his manners, and they exchange pleasantries. And then he says, "Can you tell me about what led you to this past that you're 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 swirling around with all these other souls who have received this punishment because you you submitted yourself to the." You know, this vast emotionalism that you, you had in your love for this this man who's with you there. And she starts to go through and she, she gets very poetic and she says, love led me to do blah, blah, blah. And love brought us together. And love, we were reading together one day about Lancelot and Guinevere. And love brought our lips together. And we read no more that day. You know. So, yes, it's true that love of a kind Dante is saying love of a kind brings them together. but And, and it's a, a counterfeit love. I often talk about this when I talk about Dante, that people, modern people, modern Christians often think that sex is the worst of the sins. I don't think that the medievals and the ancients thought that. It's it's still a sin for which you can be damned. But it's it kind of counterfeits some of the divine love because it is two persons. It's It's, it's not love of money. It's not love of food or drink it's not love of fame or what you know or whatever it might be it is really two persons but it's the wrong two persons and it's in the wrong way and at the wrong time etc so they're even there so i, I think that dante shows quite subtly the, the attractiveness of this type you know, they say that francesca's husband was very brutal toward her and uh, perhaps even beater and whatnot. There's all kinds of stories that the scholars have tried to dig into about them. And so you get very sympathetic about this, but you realize that the very first steps into, de into damnation 
are attractive. They, you know, it seems like this is something good. This is the kind of thing that will fulfill me. I'm, I'm living in a horrible set of circumstances. So Dante has his subtleties as, as well. It's just that Lewis, I think, speaks to us a little bit more directly because he's a modern. Yeah, he's, he was wrong, by the way, because obviously the, the courtly poets had also done the job that made it possible for people to think that that passionate romantic love justified what they what they were doing, but also led them to perdition. And he knew, you know, in other moods, he knew that as well as anybody else, because these people was a brilliant commentator on them. But there is a there is a kind of an exchange. You think about them, and of course, he and Charles Williams wrote one of the most interesting books in English about uh, about Dante called *The Figure of Beatrice*. And I would really encourage your your audience um, if they don't know that book to look into it. Uh, Charles Williams, of course, a close friend of C.S. Lewis's and, and Tolkien's, uh, part of the Inklings at Oxford, was a great reader of poetry. I mean, he was just a magnetic lecturer on poetry, people often say. And what he he says about Dante, he sees things in Dante. I've, I've probably read The Divine Comedy at least a dozen times, maybe even more than that, maybe closer to 20. And the Vita Nuova and the other works by Dante. And I, I remember being shocked when I read um, the figure of Beatrice, that he talks about how Dante says Beatrice had green eyes. And I almost flipped. I said, you know, I've read this so many times, and I didn't pay attention to one of the most obvious features when you describe a woman's eyes and you know, the reason why he falls in love with her and whatnot. And yet it takes a sensitive reader like Charles Williams and, and a book like that. And in, in that respect, I think um, he too comes at Dante from an angle that isn't quite the same one as Lewis, but has its own astonishing insights. I mean, we know about, he talked about the affirmative way. Lots of Christians talk about an asceticism, and we all do have to practice an asceticism with regard to sexuality and, and food and drink and, uh, you know, possessions and whatnot. But he also, along with Lewis, has that affirmative way. Dante and, and, and Charles Williams and Lewis also affirm that there are pleasures in the world. And that God intends us to pursue those pleasures in the proper way, to the right degree, in the right place and time. And that this really is a refutation of those who denigrate the creation. That the, po the positive things that exist in creation, in all, in all three of those writers, are things that we must affirm. But we've got to affirm them in the right way. And it's not easy to do that. But we are called to do that. It's God's creation. It's, it's, it's the wonderful thing in which we've been, we've been born into just gratuitously, God has put us here because he loves us and he wants us to, to enjoy this creation that he has. So I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, I've always been struck by the, the interplay between all of those writers. And Tolkien, of course, in many respects, uh, follows the same uh, general trend. The question of affirmation and affirmative theology was actually one of the things that really struck me when I first read the Scutic Letters in my early 20s. It was at a time when I was experience a renewal of zeal for the faith. And so when I came across lines in Screwtape where he says that God is this great hedonist, that didn't seem right to me. But as I have matured and got a little older and read some more Lewis, I, I see the point that he was making, that he was affirming the goodness of creation and fighting back against Gnosticism in whatever form it's taking in the modern world. Yeah, but see, a sentence like that in Lewis is what brings you up short. One of my favorite lines in uh, in all of Dante is, is similar to that, because Dante has these lapidary lines that are just utterly amazing. And since we've been talking about faith and reason, there's a scene uh, in, in which a uh, an Italian 
who has been kind of a Machiavelli before Machiavelli. He's helped overthrow cities in Italy by by treachery and whatnot. So he, he gets near the end of his life and he decides that he needs to go and make, and, and, and make reparation for all this. He enters a, con, a, 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 a monastery and he's praying and whatnot. And the Pope comes to him. And he says, look, I need you to help me take this one last city. And the guy says, no, I don't, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. And he says, no, look, I'm the Pope. I can forgive your sin ahead of time. And he says, can you do that? And the Pope says, yeah, I can do that. So he goes and he tells him, well, promise this. And then when they open the gates of the city and you invade, don't, don't live up to your promise. He says, okay. So then the, the soul goes back to the monastery. But when he dies, Francis of Assisi, he goes back to a Franciscan monastery. When he dies, Francis of Assisi comes to take his soul up to heaven. And the devil pops up. And he says, wait a minute. He says, you can't take this guy. Because he committed this, this evil act. And the guy says, man, but the Pope, the, the Pope absolved me. He says, no, no, no. He says, you cannot be absolved from something unless you repent yourself. No one on the outside can, can forgive you for, if you don't for yourself repent of the act. St. Francis says to the de devil, you know what? You're right. Take him. And so the devil has this great line. He, he looks at the soul and he says, perhaps you did not think I was a logician. <laughs> the reason even tells us what is evil. You know, that, that the text tells us what is good but it, and what is evil. And, we, and reason cannot simply be denied by the fact that somebody else is going to absolve you. Wow. Well, I think you're doing a great job at whetting the appetites of our listeners. I'd encourage you all to go and listen to the two-part series that Dr. Royal recorded with the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'll make sure that there are links in the show notes. But moving on, what other major themes do you see in Screwtape? Or what advice would you give to somebody approaching this text for the first time? Uh, what do they need to remember? What posture do they need to take when they come to a text like this? Well, one of the things um, that I, I emphasize in that those lectures and um, that I, I rewrite a little bit. It was great to be invited to this uh, this broadcast because it gave me an excuse to go back and read at least a few of the screw tape letters. We, we want to remember that this was written in 1941. Bombs are dropping on London. Charles Williams had to actually go to Oxford. He he was a, a book in a book book publishing house in London, but he went out to Oxford to get away from the dangers of the bombs that were falling during the Blitz. And I, I think it's clear that Lewis, well, he says explicitly at a couple of points, as he has screw tape saying at a couple of points, that the threat of unforeseen death can go one way or can go another. It can prepare you for the fact that at any moment you can die. And that's true of all of us. We don't like to dwell on it, but it is true. Or it can be used to lead somebody into temptation that, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. So... You can indulge your lusts, your, your, your egotism and whatnot, because you don't, you don't know, you know, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we're, we're going to die. And uh, it's it's insights like that. I think we, we need to be able to step back from his immediate context and understand our own. And there is a little bit of, I say this as an American, I take it from your accent, you are from somewhere else. <laughs> I'm English. Yeah. Uh, and there is a certain English difference that I like, and I think a lot of people do like, because you're, you're our mother country, and you know we get the language from you. And some yeah, people... but look what you've done to it since then. Whoa. 
know, I know. We'll have a lot to answer for on the last day. Uh, but you shouldn't read him as if he's some, you know, he's some old English guy that's talking about stuff that doesn't apply to us. I, I say to people the same thing about Dante, that um, if, when you read Dante, of course, you want to be aware of the context that he's writing. in. It's the high Middle Ages. Dante is uh, was born about nine years before Thomas Aquinas uh, died. So he, they overlap in time. And he does there's a large degree of Thomistic and scholastic philosophy in Dante, but not exactly. He, he, there are many places where he differs from St. Thomas. He's kind of considered some, some different things, but it's still, you know, worth, worth worthwhile to keep the two in play. But we read texts like this, not solely for their historical, you know, for the, the historical illumination. We read them because they have a different perspective than ours, but we need to understand them also in how they say timeless things that, that, that apply to us. I and mean, there's a reason why a figure like Dante is, this is his the 700th anniversary of his death. He died in, in, uh, in uh, 1321. So this is exactly 700 years. It'll be in September that he died. There's a reason why a figure like that survives the end of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, uh, the 19th century. I mean, there's, there's something in it in those texts. It's the same reason why we continue to read Plato and Aristotle. Virgil and St. Augustine and Martin Luther and others. Lots of books get written, and I can tell you this as a book writer, that to say something significant that is going to last 700 years is not an easy thing to do. And so when you read Lewis or you read uh, Dante, you want to think about them as, yeah, they're, they're in a different context and therefore they have somewhat different insights than we have. But how does that truth, because they really touch some deep wellsprings of truth that are still relevant right now. How does it relate to me? Um, Rod Dreher, who's an American journalist, a very famous American journalist who lives down in Louisiana, wrote a book about um, Dante, which is kind of like how Dante can save your life. And he was going through a tough period. He moved back uh, to Louisiana where his family lived. He had his own family at that point. His father was dying. I think he had... Uh, whatever this disease is where you feel extraordinarily tired, you know, and he was depressed. And by, by accident, one day he was walking through a bookstore and he saw Dante's Inferno and grabbed it and it opened his eyes to a, a number of different things. And it's, it's, it's not only that, but it's also insights into public life. Dante was a, was a political figure in his time. He was a poet in his time. He's really, before he was exiled from Florence at the age of 35, 36 in 1300, he'd already occupied the highest political office in the, the commune of Florence. He was one, one of the priors, as they called him back then. So he was an extraordinarily talented man in a variety of different fields. And he can, he can speak to us. He can speak to us about all sorts of different things. And right now, I'm going to be teaching an online course in Dante starting in about two weeks, um, starting with the Inferno. And uh, I think right now we need to reconnect to these Christian sources because we're losing a lot of what we we knew not all that long ago. And we, we certainly in the English speaking world, the great figures like Lewis and Tolkien are still there. But I don't think they quite have the same prominence among younger people that they may have had for you or for me. And so uh, we need to make a we need to make a conscious effort to reconnect with these great, relatively recent Chesterton, of course, is another. Uh, relatively recent figures who have a great deal to say to us, and out, and they're outside the strictly churchy in, environment, right? I mean, they're they're talking to us from a 
very sophisticated intellectual and social and uh, historical standpoint. So there's just, you know, I go back to these authors again and again and again. My wife sometimes tells me, you know, are you reading that again? And <laughs> Someone once said that the classics are the types of books that you never stop rereading. You, know, you never stop rereading Plato. You never stop reading, rereading St. Augustine. You never stop rereading the New Testament, for that matter, right? I mean, we constantly... God just speaks to you from those those verses. One verse will shine out one day or from a psalm or some other text. So um, we've got a lot of recovery work to do, and we need to recover in order to move forward. It's for that reason that I want to cover an experiment in criticism sometime soon, uh, because Lewis has got some really great advice for us there. He talks about reading old books and rereading old books. He says, my own eyes aren't enough for me. I must see through the eyes of others. And Screwtape backs him up here. He says, we've managed to generally keep most people away from these old books, and the scholars who actually read them, we get them to just do literary criticism on them. At no point do they ever actually ask themselves, is this true? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let me make my plea for literature, since my PhD is in comparative literature. And it's this, that... Yeah, we want to learn how to reason. I mean, I'm the president of the Faith and Reason Institute. We want to learn how to reason more carefully. And for that, we want to read you know, some of the very strict Christian re reasoners, Aquinas, Calvin, you know, others. But in an age like ours, you know, if you gave the average person Aquinas, I mean, you're able to read Aquinas, but the average person... That's is not a little bit of an overstatement, but I've managed it a couple of times. <laughs> Well, I mean, you knew enough to be able to go in and, and look at that that stuff about gluttony and, you know. Um, but in a, at a time when people are not really being taught to reason all that well, and in fact almost are being discouraged as if reasoning is somehow an offense against our feelings, you know. Images are important. Literary images are important. Um, music is important. Artwork is important. Films are important because... Artists have a way of speaking to us that it doesn't only address our the, the rational part, portions of our soul, but also, you know, the soul is a much wider thing. The, the, the reasoning capacity is a capacity of the soul. It's not like those other things are either just not part of us or are just part of our bodies or whatever. The soul encompasses all those things. In fact, the soul is able to... I'm often astonished to think that the gray matter in my brain is able to look through a telescope at some place billions of miles away. You know, that this little bit of meat inside of our skulls can can encompass the whole universe. It's an astonishing thing, really. And so I think that these these images are important because they get people started. They they get them starting to think about you know, boy, I hadn't considered that, but now I can consider something that is outside my you know my, my my field of perception up until now. And that, I, I think, is an extraordinary service that writers like Lewis, Tolkien, of course, is one of the most popular writers of the, the last two centuries. I want to emphasize that because as, as a reader of literature who also does philosophy and theology a lot of the time, this, this is a dimension that I think we need to work on more. A lot of people quote, you know, that line from Dostoevsky, that beauty will save the world. I'm a little skeptical of that, actually. <laughs> but properly understood, yes, beauty and, and images and, and expanding our vision to uh, force us to think some more about things other than the narrow 
uh, practicalities of modern existence. I think that that is a, a crucial thing for us these days. Lewis famously said that the mind is the organ of truth and the imagination is the organ of meaning. And one of the things that I've noticed in about the last 10 years, I've noticed more speakers and more books coming out about what is often called imaginative apologetics. The idea that in defending the faith, we have to engage the imagination. And I think they really are trying to navigate that path to try and work out how beauty will save the world. It's one of the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. How can this be put to the service of the faith? How can we use it to evangelize? Well, it's this is a vast field, and I know people who are working at it, and you probably know many people who are working at it too. And it's, you know, it be, I, I think an, a key part of this too is it begins with our forms of worship, because we want to bring the best things that we have to the worship of God. And if we can make our are, are praying together more beautiful and our language more beautiful. Um, I'm quite delighted, by the way, that there's a kind of an Anglican... Uh, the Anglican Ordinariate? Yeah, the Anglican Ordinariate uh, in English-speaking Catholicism now. Because the, that language is just so beautiful from the, the prayer book. And it, it helps us. It helps us in the English-speaking world. I mean, I, I, I grew up at a time when everybody who was a... I was an altar boy. You all learned Latin and you memorized the Latin of the mass. You had to be able to memorize that to get out of school to go to serve mass. And that's what was an incentive. For me. Um, yeah, that's the motivation right there. And then if you know, if you if you served at a, a wedding, you actually got three dollars or a funeral. You got a few dollars. So there was a monetary reward for learning Latin in those days as well. I was an altar server, too. And I do remember getting paid very well for weddings. And I didn't even have to learn Latin. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, most people are not going to learn Latin. Learning foreign languages is hard. I've, I've worked at them my whole life, and I like doing it. And only certain people are capable of doing it. So we need some things in English, um, good prayer, good liturgies, um, and then also things outside of that, things that remind us outside, as these great authors do, when we step out into the, the larger culture that we can still bring with us um, a different notion of what the world is and what is good in the world, what, what should even appear to us as good in the world, uh, than the world itself has. And certainly that's part of Christianity. Well, I think we've done a really good job introducing you to our listeners. You clearly know your stuff. You've got a lot to say about both Dante and Screwtape. But before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to say? Any other themes in Screwtape that you want to draw people's attention to? Or would you like to share with us simply your favorite part of the book? Oh, boy, you're putting me on the spot now because just about everything in there is my favorite part. Um, you know, I've talked about how, in a way, there is a, a divine comedy going on in Screwtape. It's a little more obvious in uh, The Great Divorce, but when our young man actually dies at the end and he has the, the beatific vision, it's curious that even Screwtape knows what some of the elements of that are going to be. You know, and, and very briefly, it's, it's, I mean, it's very hard for, for anyone to describe what the beatific vision would be like. Dante, of course, attempts it because he's a great genius. Lewis has it. Uh, what's, the, the last book in the Narnia uh, series, Narnia series, is Last Battle. And there, there is that transcendence at the end where the world ends and then is kind of reborn again, which I think is a very striking 
a bit of literary work as well. But here too, when this young man dies, and you know, these are these are sort of column-length talks that that Lewis gave, and so just in four or five pages, he's able to convey the fact that this not, the experience that he's now having, as as repellent as it is to devils, is just this extraordinary thing that Lewis is able to suggest with just a few sentences. So I suppose that's, I mean, I just love so much of it, the humor, the penetration, the the coverage of so many different things in, in English life at that time. But ultimately, that's what it's all about. I mean, all these other things kind of drop away at some point and help being able to tell us that, yes, that transcendence is out there waiting for us. Ultimately, that's the most important message of all. Dr. Royal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people go to find out more about you, buy your books, and the work of the Faith and Reason Institute? Well, my books are all available on Amazon and all the other you know, sources. Nobody goes to bookstores these days because of the virus, but um, at least you can find them there. Uh, you can look at frinstitute.org, which is our um, it's the uh, umbrella for a lot of the activities that we carry out. And we, we try to keep up to date there. If I publish something in you know, some, some publication or I appear on TV, we try to document it there. Uh, our daily column series, The Catholic Thing, is uh, available online. If you can subscribe to it for free. Uh, we've got 50,000 subscribers right now, a very passionate uh, crowd. Uh, if you go to www.thecatholicthing, all lowercase.org, and click on that, there will be a, a pop-up of how to subscribe. You just put your email there, and at 6 in the morning, every morning, 365 days a year, and including leap years, you will get in, into your inbox a column, which is to say 1,000 words, not long, that you can read. It's on some topic. could be a public question. It could be a technical Christian question. You can read it very quickly with one cup of coffee. And a lot of people like that. This, we've kind of made this our charism that for that kind of writing, we, we we make our writers be very brief. Once in a blue moon, I'll, I'll allow a writer to go up to 1,200 words, but it's usually I cut them to 1,000. And they scream, but I, I tell them that they can come back another time. Right? But what we want to do is make sure that people don't have to spend a long time. And there are other things on the site. We link to all sorts of other things. But that one column you can read very quickly. And I I read it one day before everybody else because I edit it the morning before it appears. And I can tell you I enjoy reading it uh, that one day. And I enjoy writing it when I, I on the days when I write it. And we have a regular rotation of authors very distinguished authors with some um, visiting irregulars, as I like to call them, too. So. And what about this online Dante course that you're teaching? Where can people find out more about that? Uh, you can find that, um, I think you can find that on the FR Institute uh, website. We, I have to say we have 560 people enrolled already in that course. So we're hoping that we can manage the technical side of it. And we're also working on a, a certain amount of um, interaction where people can pose questions and whatnot. But it'll start on February 24th. Um, if you can't find it, send an email to the Catholic Thing, info at thecatholicthing.org, and we'll try to get you some information. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, Dr. Royal. As always, thanks to our top tier supporters, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and encourage your friends who have never read Screwtape to give it a go. 
and be sure to check out Dr. Ra's presentation on the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'll make sure that there are links in all of the show notes. And please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.